Our God above, our Heavenly Father, You are to be feared for You rule over all. You fill heaven and earth with Your glory. All of creation resounds with Your praise. You are exalted above all. And yet You stoop. You stoop to show mercy to frail and weak sinners. You forgive our sins as far as the east is from the west. You keep Your covenant with us, extending Your grace to a thousand generations. You have done more for us than we can comprehend or imagine. Your love for us knows no bounds. And so we give You thanks. O great Father, through Your Son, You have brought in an everlasting kingdom, the renewal of all things. Your Son came once in humility to suffer and die for our sins, to bear our curse, to die the death and suffer the wrath that we deserve. And this same Son will come again in glory at the last day to raise us from the dead and to bring us into His glorious new creation where all things will be united in Him. And so we live in light of this blessed hope, this happy ending, this joyous reunion of heaven and earth that You have promised to us when all things will be summed up in Christ and Christ will be all in all. And so today we worship Christ as our King. And Father, we ask You to help us to give the Lord Jesus preeminence in everything. May the Lord Jesus Christ have preeminence in our hearts and in our lives this day and every day. May He reign supreme over all. May we obey Him in all things. May He inherit the nations as You have promised to Him. For He is the One who ever lives to make intercession for us. And so today, Father, through Your Son and in Your Spirit, we ask You to welcome us into Your presence, to welcome us into Your heavenly temple. Father, we come to You needy and hungry to receive gifts from You, lives of, gifts of life and glory and wisdom. We come to receive Your gifts, to give You thanks, to glorify and magnify Your name. For we adore You, O great Father, with Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we approach You, and in the Holy Spirit, by whose power we pray, one God in three persons, from all eternity to all eternity, the one true living God. Amen. Our lesson of the day is Psalm 17, a prayer by David. Hear a righteous cause, Yahweh. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. From your face, let my vindication come forth. Let your eyes look with iniquity, look with equity. Pardon me. You have visited me by night. You have examined my heart. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of man, by the words of your lips, I have kept myself from the paths of the violent. By holding fast my steps to your tracks, my feet have not slipped. As for me, I call upon you, for you will answer me, mighty one. Incline your ear to me, hear my word. Distinguish me by your loyal love, you who saves those who take refuge from those who are rising up against your right hand. 
Guard me as the apple of your eye. In the shadow of your wings, hide me from the face of the wicked who despoil me, from the enemies of my soul who surround me. Their fat hearts they have closed up. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is longing to devour, even as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, Yahweh, confront his face, bring him to his knees, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, Yahweh, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. But as for those you cherish, you fill their bellies. Their sons have plenty, and they shall leave their abundance to their children. And I, in righteousness, shall behold your face. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel that Jesus has come and He is coming again in glory to set all things right. We thank You for the promise that You are with us by Your Spirit to bless the reading and the preaching of Your Word. So we pray that that would be the case this morning, that You would consecrate us as living sacrifices by the sword of Your Spirit, that You would conform us to the likeness of Your Son and fill us with hope to persevere to the end. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Every Lord's Day with the church around the world and throughout the ages, we confess that the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and that He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead and that His kingdom shall have no end. Even though many Christians have neglected or distorted this biblical doctrine of the end times or the last things, Christ the King Sunday, which we celebrate today, provides us with the perfect opportunity to reflect upon the biblical teaching about the return of Jesus as King. The clear teaching of Scripture is that Jesus will return to earth in His resurrected and glorified human body in order to consummate His saving work. All the dead will be raised to life at that day and all will appear before God's judgment seat. The righteous will be vindicated and will share in God's new creation forever. The wicked, along with Satan and his angels, will be condemned to everlasting torment in hell. The final coming of Christ is the completion, not the failure, of God's mission to redeem the world. The return of Jesus is good news. It's an essential part of the Gospel story. One theologian summarizes this truth well. He says, we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing. 
something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Now, if you wanted to know what the Bible said about eschatology, my guess is that the first book you would go to would be probably Revelation. Not many of us would think right off bat, right off the bat, to look in the Old Testament. But if you want to understand what Revelation is saying, you have to understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament, especially, uh, has a lot to say about the coming of the Lord. It informs how we understand our eschatology. And the book of Psalms, surprisingly enough, has a great deal to teach us about how we should view God's coming. And just as importantly as what we should believe about God's coming, the Psalter teaches us how to pray and how to wait and how to live while we wait for God's coming. And so like many other Psalms, Psalm 17 views God's coming as good news. Because after all, God is the only just judge who can vindicate the innocent and hold the wicked accountable. He's the only one who can make things truly right. So notice the surprising way that David begins his prayer. Hear a righteous cause, Yahweh. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. David doesn't waste any time in declaring himself to be in the right. He is certain that his cause is a righteous cause. His plea is just and he is not offering it with a divided heart. He is not offering it with any sort of ulterior motives. No deceit on his lips. This may seem a bit presumptuous to our ears, but David's prayer demonstrates the simple logic of faith. It's almost, you could put it in a a logical form like a syllogism where you have a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. David's major premise is that God upholds justice for His people. His minor premise is that He is a member in good standing of God's covenant people. And so his conclusion by faith is that God will hear his plea and vindicate him. It's as simple as that. It is faith in God's faithfulness that fuels biblical prayer. On the other hand, if we don't believe the truth about God or the truth about ourselves, then we have very little reason to pray Prayerlessness and unbelief often go hand in hand. 
But when we embrace the truth about God and the truth about ourselves, then we are driven to pray. We can even pray boldly like the psalmist. And so David introduces his prayer. He asserts his righteousness and then he goes on to claim complete and total innocence against his against these accusations these in the face of these accusations that his opponents are bringing against him in verses 2 through 5 he says from your face let my vindication come forth let your eyes look with equity you have visited me by night you have examined my heart you have tested me and you find nothing i have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of man, by the words of your lips, I have kept myself from the paths of the violent. By holding fast my steps to your tracks, my feet have not slipped. We don't know the historical background of this prayer, but David is confident. He knows for sure that his suffering, whatever form it takes, in this instance is not because of his sin. If he was being afflicted because of his sin, this psalm would sound very different. Because David is a great example of someone who knows when to hold him and knows when to fold him, spiritually speaking. The same man who can boldly assert his innocence, he can call on God to pass judgment on him because he's so sure he's in the right, is the same broken sinner who can pen some of the most profound penitential psalms. David knows when to say, judge me according to my righteousness as well as have mercy on me, O God, according to Your steadfast love, according to Your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That's the same man. That's the same person. He knows that there is a time for confession and repentance and there is a time for doubling down. But David has the humility. He has the faith to do both really well and to do them at the right time. I dare say that many of us, especially Christians in the public eye, could benefit greatly from following David's example at this point. Because, let's face it, we Christians often fall into ditches on either side of the road. Either we, apolo- we never apologize for anything, we always double down on everything, or we apologize for everything and we never stand our ground. We have uh, many cases in the news going on right now that are examples, I think, of this very problem. But the Psalms train us to avoid these two extremes and to walk in the way of truth. The Psalms train us to orient ourselves to God so that we live according to His standards and not the standards of the world. 
The Psalms train us to seek God's approval more than the approval of man. The Psalms train us to fear God and nothing else. The Psalms teach us what true righteousness really looks like. But isn't it a little bit presumptuous for anyone to claim to be righteous? Like every psalm, Psalm 17 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He is the righteous one par excellence. He is the one who was persecuted unjustly by wicked men. He is the one who entrusted himself to the just judge and was vindicated by his father in the resurrection. David, of course, only foreshadows and prefigures the righteous King Jesus Christ. But that doesn't cancel out David's innocence or our own. It is possible, it is possible for fallen men to be innocent in a certain matter without claiming sinless perfection. In fact, many sinners in Scripture are described as righteous, blameless, or even perfect. Think of men like Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Job, David, and then folks in the New Testament like Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, Mary's husband Joseph, Simeon. All these men and women are described by God as blameless, as righteous Because a righteous person, after all, is simply one who is in right standing with God. To be a righteous person is to be a covenant keeper. And when covenant is broken, a righteous person repents and restores covenant. That's all it means to be righteous. Jesus welcomed with open arms sinners who knew their need for forgiveness. But He reserved His harshest condemnation for those who thought they had it all together. Whom does God oppose? God opposes those who mess up, right? God opposes those who fail, who make mistakes, right? No, God opposes the proud. God opposes the arrogant. God opposes the self-righteous. And to whom does God show grace? God shows grace to those who make their own way. Right? God, God shows grace to those who earn it by their perfection. Right? No, not at all. God shows grace to the humble. God shows grace to the broken. God shows grace to the poor in spirit. So, should we continue in sin so that God's grace would abound? Absolutely not. David, David's whole point in this psalm is that he has kept his heart pure. He has restrained his mouth from transgressing God's commands. He has diligently avoided the ways of the violent and has instead walked in God's tracks. God has called us to faithfulness. God has called us to radical obedience. 
And David plainly tells us how he was able to maintain his innocence. And he says in verse 4 that it was by the Word of God's lips. By the Word of God's lips, David was able to maintain his integrity. Like the righteous man of Psalm 1, David's blamelessness in this case is a testimony to the life-giving power of God's Word. As Psalm 19 beautifully puts it, God's Word is perfect, reviving the soul. It's sure, making wise the simple. It's right, rejoicing the heart. It's pure, enlightening the eyes. So David can pray without deceitful lips because he has been clinging to the Word of God's lips. And it is because he has maintained his innocence that he is able to call on God for vindication from his enemies in verses 6-9. through He says, As for me, I call upon you, for you will answer me, Mighty One. Incline your ear to me, hear my word. Distinguish me by your loyal love, you who saves those who take refuge from those who are rising up against your right hand. Guard me as the apple of your eye, and the shadow of your wings hide me from the face of the wicked who despoil me, from the enemies of my soul who surround me. This plea for vindication against his enemies once again invokes God's covenant promises. David acknowledges that his enemies are first and foremost God's enemies. They are afflicting David because they are rising up against God's right hand. David has the perspective to see his own personal troubles in the grand scheme of things. These are first and foremost God's enemies and God's problem. And so God is the one that David turns to for help. And what David asks God to do is to distinguish between those who belong to the Lord and those who are opposed to the Lord. Verse 7 is usually rendered, show me the wonder of your loyal love. But this line is better translated, distinguish me or set me apart by your loyal love. And Scripture is filled with examples of how God sets His people apart from their enemies. How He sets them apart from judgment. How He sets them apart for blessing. Think of the plagues on Egypt. In Exodus 9, here's one example. Uh, On the fifth plague on the livestock, the Lord says, I will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. God makes it clear who His people are by sparing them from His judgment. In Exodus 33, later on, Moses is praying to the Lord when it's time to leave Mount Sinai. And he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not even bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? 
Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? How are God's people marked out from every other people? It's by the presence of God's glory among them. God distinguishes His people. He sets them apart. And He shows them His covenant love. And then one more example that we often actually overlook is in Psalm 139, verse 14. David says, I praise you for I am fearfully, and it's usually uh, rendered, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And we think that David's praise is primarily for God's glorious uh, design of the human body and the way that the human uh, body is formed together, is knitted together in the womb. And that's certainly worthy. God is certainly worthy of praise for His design of the human body. But David's praise is actually because God has set him apart as a member of the covenant even while he was a baby in his mother's womb. If you translate it uh, according to this reading, it says, I praise you for the fact that I have been awesomely distinguished or awesomely set apart. David's praise is for God's grace and setting apart His people as covenant members even while we are children in our mother's wombs. And this happens when God comes in judgment. He sets His people apart. He distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked. But it also happens every Lord's Day when Christ comes to meet with us. He comes to judge us. He comes and He baptizes. He sets us apart. He marks us out as His own and He blesses us. In the Eucharist, when the Lord gives us His body and blood, He marks us out as His people and He pours His blessings upon us. And so we, like David, when we are confronted with the reality of God's judgment, we are to take great comfort in the fact that God distinguishes between those who belong to Him and those who oppose Him. And even though that judgment may seem long overdue to us, we know that God is the Savior of those who take refuge in Him. There's one other verse in this middle section that I want to draw your attention to, and that is verse 8. Because I think this is the key, really, to the whole psalm. It's the very center of the psalm. And it says, Guard me as the apple of your eye. In the shadow of your wings, hide me. This is one of several allusions in this psalm to the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses describes how God has shown mercy to His people and led them through the wilderness despite their sin. He describes how the Lord found His people, the people of Israel, in the wilderness and He cared for them, how He watched over them as the apple of His eye, and how like an eagle, He covered them with His wings and He bore them up on His pinions. 
But here's, here's the million dollar question. What does it mean to be the apple of God's eye? What does that even mean? Well, it means to be really special to someone, right? That's kind of the way it uh, has come to, to be understood. And that's true. But I, uh, it actually turns out that this is an English idiom that was um, actually the, the term apple of the eye, as far as I can tell, was coined by none other than good old King Alfred, you know, of King Alfred's war song fame. He was a brilliant scholar. He translated Pope Gregory's pastoral rule from Latin into uh, English, early English, whatever that would have been at his time. And he used the term to refer to the pupil, the center, the black part of your eye. Because at that point, it was thought that that part of your eye was solid. We know, of course, that light passes through the pupil, but he used it to refer to the center of the eye. Then Shakespeare later picked it up, other poets picked it up, and it became part of our terminology. But the Hebrew text doesn't actually say, guard me as the apple of your eye. It literally says, catch this, guard me as the little man of your eye. Alright, if that sounds crazy, think about the word pupil. Where does the word pupil come from? The word pupil comes from the Latin word for little boy or little girl or puppet, or little doll. The little man of someone's eye is the miniature reflection of yourself that you can see when you're looking closely into someone's eyes. Now, don't try this now, but when you go home, stare deeply into someone's eyes, or go find a mirror if that's a little uncomfortable, and you will see your reflection miniature in your own pupils if it's a mirror, or in someone else's pupils. You will be the little man of their eyes. Think about a pupil. This is where the, the term comes from. A pupil in school is a little boy, a little man. It's a little version of the teacher who watches over them. A teacher watches over the students and the students, the pupils, reflect the teacher. They are reflected in the eyes of the teacher. And so to be the little man of God's eye, to be the pupil of God's eye, is to be someone that God watches over closely. To be someone that God gazes upon intently. It's to be a miniature reflection of God. So how does God set His people apart and show them His loyal love? By watching over them and drawing them near to His presence to behold His face. This is how David envisions God's protection. And in the next section, verses 10 through 12, he describes exactly what it is God's people need protection from. David says, their fat hearts they have closed up. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is longing to devour. 
even as a young lion lurking in ambush. Describing the wicked as beasts is very common throughout Scripture, especially in the Psalter. But this practice goes all the way back to Genesis 3, where Adam and his wife got in big trouble because they listened to a beast who spoke proudly and set his eyes to bring down mankind. And ever since, ever since Genesis 3, sinful men and rebellious nations have been described in bestial language, especially when they attack God's people and try to devour them. And so in talking about the, the prophecies about the Messiah coming to rule the nations, are oft, Jesus is often pictured as the new Adam who comes to tame the beastly nations. The Apostle Peter, of course, famously compares the devil to a roaring lion who is out seeking to devour us. The biblical principle is clear. Sin is dehumanizing. Pride makes you act like an animal. That's David's whole point in Psalm 32. He says, stop acting like a stupid animal and confess your sins. An animal has to be led by a bit and a bridle. It has to be broken. It has to be trained. When we hold on to our sin and we refuse to come clean before God, you're acting like an animal. Sin makes you less human, not more human. And so we who are made in God's image can only realize the full glory of our humanity in submission to the One whose image we bear. To rebel against God, to cast off His rules is a surefire recipe for enslavement and humiliation. Then finally, in the closing section, verses 13-15, through David ties together the various themes of his prayer. He says, Arise, Yahweh! Confront His face! Bring Him to His knees! Deliver my soul from the wicked by Your sword! From men by Your hand, Yahweh! From men of the world whose portion is in this life! But as for those You cherish, You fill their bellies. Their sons have plenty and they shall leave their abundance to their children. And I in righteousness shall behold Your face. I shall be satisfied when I awake in Your likeness. In classic form, David prays for God to turn the schemes of the wicked back on them in poetic justice. David calls on God to arise and deliver Him by His hand from those who are rising up against God's right hand. David's enemies have set their eyes against him, and so David calls on God to confront them to their faces. The wicked are seeking to bring down the righteous, and so David calls on God to bring down the wicked. David prays for God to protect his soul from those who are enemies 
of his soul. And David envisions the blessings of God in this life, but also in the life to come. Don't miss the significance of all the corporeal or anatomical language in this psalm. The righteous and the wicked are contrasted in relation to their eyes, to their ears, to their mouths, to their faces. But even more striking than that is the extent to which God is described in humaniform terms. David mentions God's lips. He mentions God's eyes twice. He mentions God's ears twice. He mentions God's hands twice. And he mentions God's face twice. The end of the psalm concludes with David's confident hope that he will behold the Lord's face. But even more than that, the final line of the psalm is David's hope that he will be satisfied when he awakes in God's likeness. This seems to be the, the full explanation of verse 8. That idea that David wants to be the little man of God's eye. To be the little man of God's eye is to be under God's watchful gaze. To be the pupil of God's eye is to see God's face and recognize yourself as God's reflection. Much like Psalm 16, David's hope is that God will deliver him from his enemies and even deliver him from death itself. David knows he is destined to be raised from death and to be fully conformed to God's likeness. And in case we're tempted to interpret this vision of God merely as some mystical experience, remember how God is described in this psalm. He's described in complete bodily language. This psalm is a prophecy of the incarnation of God. When the divine Son of God takes on a human nature and a human body and He comes to earth as the God-man Jesus, Psalm 17 is being fulfilled. When the God-man cries out for vindication on the cross and His Father raises Him from the dead on the third day, Psalm 17 is being fulfilled. And when in response to the church's prayers, this same Jesus comes again in glory at the last day to judge the living and the dead, Psalm 17 is being fulfilled. And when you and I and all of God's people are raised in glorified bodies in God's new creation, free from the contamination of sin and fully conformed to the likeness of our Savior, Psalm 17 will finally be fully fulfilled. The Apostle John puts it this way, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him 
purifies himself as he is pure. In righteousness we shall behold his face, and we shall be satisfied when we awake in his likeness. This is our blessed hope. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the assurance that You will conform us to Your likeness. You will complete the good work that You have started in us and in the transformation of Your entire creation. Lord, give us faith to persevere. Give us faith to call on You in times of persecution and distress. Give us faith, Lord, to seek Your will and to fear You and nothing else. We pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.